Well, good morning again. (laughs) That's okay to say good morning again. Um, We're going to be starting a series this morning as a church uh, that kind of will take us through this Advent season or take us through uh, the month at the very least. It's going to be focusing in on the life of John the Baptist as what uh, many scholars and pastors and church uh, has historically called uh, the forerunner. So this is the forerunner series. We're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter uh, 40 this morning, but we're also going to be in John chapter 1. Uh, The text will be on the screen at different times, and so you're welcome to uh, follow along there. Or if you have your own, you have your own Bible this morning, then uh, that's a great place to be uh, giving your attention then as well. We're focusing then on this morning's, uh, the first Sunday of Advent, on hope. And hope is kind of a tricky thing if you want to try to nail it down. Um, I was trying to think through, I was trying to think through just what hope means, and we're having a problem. We're having a problem. Can you hear me now? (laughs) Could you not hear me before? (laughs) I guess you couldn't. All right, that means I can lose this. Okay. Hope, right? Uh, Hope is kind of a tricky thing to nail down because each one of us has a different location that we put our hope. Hope becomes this... um, this thing that, uh, that if you allude to it, what you're really alluding to is something concrete on the other side. Uh, and so that's why it can be a little tricky. If we say we put our hope in uh, something that we can't actually locate, um, what we really have is wishful thinking. And I want to make sure that we understand that Christian hope is not wishful thinking. And the hope that uh, Israel had in its time prior to the Christ, prior to Messiah's arrival, was also not a wishful thinking. So if I say, uh, what do you hope this morning? I could, I could say there's a few things that I could hope that maybe wouldn't really be hope. Like uh, this morning when I got dressed... Obviously, I am not in uh, any kind of attire fit for running. So when I got dressed this morning, kind of mentally, I was saying to myself, I hope I don't have to run today. It's not going to go well. (laughs) Another thing we could say if we're looking at hope is we could say, well, you know, I hope that uh, somebody left a large check in my mailbox while I was gone. Probably not, though. Am I right? And then uh, another thing I was thinking is, well, maybe I could say that I hope tomorrow when I wake up I'm 25 pounds lighter. And also, would we say these are realistic hopes? No. So if hope doesn't have a realistic kind of uh, concrete nature on the other side, do we really call it hope or is it wishful thinking? I want to I draw our attention then to Israel this morning in a time of hope, in a season of hope. Israel had been uh, God's chosen people. They had experienced a close relationship with him, a protective and nurturing and special relationship with him. And there was a season of hope in Israel's time where it looked almost like it was a foolish thing, where hope almost looked like there wasn't anything concrete on the other side. Because hope, hope needs an anchor, if, hope isn't, if our Christian hope, if any hope, isn't anchored in something solid, uh, can, it, can it impact how we live? Can it impact the way that we go about living? So we could say, I hope my hard work and sacrifice pay off, whether that's in 
going to the gym or, or being committed to diet and exercise or financial responsibility, things like that. I hope my hard work and sacrifice pay off. Well, see, now we're, now we're anchoring that hope in something concrete, in some steps and action. We could say that hope connects the future to the past. I hope something about what's coming ahead is impacted what I know I've already done. And that's where we really need to focus in and say, okay, does Israel's hope, does God's people, does their hope rest in, in strictly or only wishful thinking, or is it anchored in something that has been taken care of, in something concrete from the past? To lose hope is a crushing kind of defeat because hope can keep you moving forward. Hope really can't be stolen, I don't think. I think hope can really only be undermined. Let me try to say that again. I don't know that hope can really be stolen. I think it can just be undermined. When someone is trying to poke holes in the concrete thing, in the anchor that you've uh, attached attached your life to. And there was a group of people then in this span of Israel's history, there's this period of silence, and that's hard to deal with. As people and humans, we, we crave this connection and communication. We want relationship. And Israel as a, as a people is no different. And there becomes this period of time after exile where God seems to go silent, where just the the voice on the other end of the line is silent and pauses. Have you ever been on the phone with somebody and you have a long pause and you go, did I lose you? Are you still there? Imagine that for 500 years. Imagine that as a people wondering, does God still see us? Does God still commit himself to us? Are we still his? And in that period of time, you have a generation and different families that say, no, we think the Lord is gone. We think he is, he's done his plan or, or simply he's moved on or we don't know what. But it's time for us to put hope in our own actions. It's time for us to put hope in our own ambitions. Reality is what we make of it. And then there was other, an old guard. There was the, those people who were committed to the word. They were committed to the past. And they, they were committed to that faithfulness saying, no, we still hope that what God says will take place. It will come to pass. But with each decade and each generation and each century that passes, that hope becomes, uh, it looks a little more and more frayed. That anchor seems to be held by fewer and fewer threads. <clears throat> Have you ever come across somebody who's a fanatic <laughs> for something that they hope? So, this, this brings, it brings me to mind this past season of, of baseball. There was somebody who out there became very widely known that uh, this man in Texas had placed millions of dollars up as a wager in his hope that his team, his, his Houston Astros baseball team, would not just win uh, a pennant or a game, but they would win the entire, they would win the World Series millions of dollars that's the that's a fanatic kind of hope 
he had nothing except hope. I mean, he could look at the look at uh, formulas and say this is maybe a basically or a properly basic kind of expectation, but it was still hope at the end of the day. He couldn't impact that outcome. We have some fanatic kind of hope, and I want to introduce you then to John the Baptist this morning, who was exactly that. John the Baptist had a fanatic kind of hope. So we're going to look at Isaiah 40. And you can look at the screen with me then. I might need some help with this because I had intended to be uh, hands-free, and now (laughs) I can't be. Okay, Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort. O comfort my people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term and that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain when the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all people shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are grass. Their their constancy is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good tidings. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead the mother sheep. Israel's hope, Israel's hope stretched back from any of their, from any time in their existence to different points of promise and fulfillment. But by the time of Zechariah and Elizabeth, who many of us are introduced to in the first few chapters of of the Gospels, there had been a period of silence where many people had started to lose their hope. They still hoped things would change. Rome ruled the world. Rome ruled Israel. Rome ruled the political system. Rome had put in power those who were authorized, those who were serving in the temple. Rome authorized those who were serving in in the palace. And that's not really freedom. And God's people knew that his promise to them is that they were a light to the nations and a light to the world. Their light was dim. Their their relationship with him seemed less bright than simply a flicker. So many people hoped things would change and many others shifted their hope to look differently than before. Some felt that hope was foolish and irresponsible. But God made a promise that echoed throughout his entire relationship with his people and the world. If you want to know that promise, you can look at Genesis 3. It was about deliverance and restoration. 
It got a little more specific around Isaiah chapter 42, and that was encouraging. But part of what made Isaiah 42 helpful is that Isaiah 40 came first. Someone had to come before the Savior, and so the Savior, his arrival has to, is, is marked by someone else first. It's important to note, if we look at all four Gospels, if you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you find this common thread between all four of them, that each one of them wants you to know that John the Baptist came on the scene prior to Jesus. You see, there had been a lot of people who had come prior to Jesus. There had been a lot of people in that 500-year history. There had been many messiahs, so to speak. But none of them had the forerunner. None of them had someone coming ahead of time, empowered by the Spirit of God, who was the voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. John the Baptist becomes the signal for God's real promises to be fulfilled so that his people wouldn't miss it. So the forerunner, if we want to kind of nail down this idea, the forerunner is a signal for something greater on the way, kind of like the tremors before the earthquake. Kind of like these rumblings that, oh, something is about to happen. What, what is it? It's the testimony to God's grace so that we would recognize him fulfilling his word. Again, if you have this two-part thing, this two-part promise, then you can't, God's making it uh, as easy as possible for his people to not miss it, to not mistake it, so that the Messiah can't pass them by. There had been, like I said, there had been many miniature, there had been many, many Christs, Messiahs who had come before Jesus, who said, we're here to save Israel, we're here to take back the temple, we're here to take back the land. But none of them had the forerunner, none of them had the Holy Spirit of God moving ahead of him, saying, no, this is really happening, until we get to John the Baptist. So John becomes the dawn of the day that many had hoped for. As we look at John chapter 1 then, and we look at this man, we look at this prophet, I'm going to take, I just want you to, we'll be on the same page, that John the Evangelist wrote the Gospel of John, which is what we're going to be looking at, John chapter 1. John the Baptist did not. Two different Johns. One wrote the book. He was the one traveling with Jesus. He was one of Jesus' early uh, followers, disciples, perhaps even one of John the Baptist's first disciples. He's the son of Zebedee. John the Baptist is who each of the Gospels introduce as the forerunner to the Messiah ministry. And he was the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. There's this really awesome thing. There's this really awesome thing in Scripture where you have people like John and like Elijah or, say, uh, Isaac and Jacob or David or Samuel. There's this really great thing where God uses miraculous kind of uh, pregnancies to introduce a, a person of grace to the story. Again, so that, we wouldn't, so that we wouldn't miss that he was moving somehow. 
Zechariah and Elizabeth were John the Baptist's parents, and they were pretty confident that they weren't going to have any children. Zechariah served in the temple, and Elizabeth was an older woman who believed herself to be simply infertile, barren, when an angel told them that they were going to have a child. John's story, John as a character, gets introduced to us through this miraculous introduction, through this, through this miraculous interference, if you will, that the Holy Spirit was up to something. Now, do we have any area around here? So I know I'm kind of used to, the, or I'm kind of new to this Goshen area, but do we have any area around here where we would call like the wilderness or the, uh, the wild place? We have state parks and we have county parks. I'm not talking about a park. I'm not talking about where things are kept well and, you know, you have nice walking paths and the streams and the clean, you know, people go there and they pick up the trash often. I'm talking about a wild place, an abandoned place. If you heard that someone was preaching in that area, would you think, I want to check that out. You can just think to yourself, I'd be a little curious, but I'd probably wait until the news covered it. <laughs> until some newscasters or some anchor was out there and making sure that it's saying like, okay, this is the real deal and nobody is getting, uh, you know, hurt. But if you, started, if you started hearing about not just one or two people, but dozens of people who are saying, no, this guy has got something to say, and it looks like he's really talking as if God is with him, as if God is empowering his voice. He's doing things and saying things like, like we've only read about. You're starting to get a picture of who John the Baptist is. John the Baptist ate bugs and wore wild animals' hair. He's not one that we're going to be attracted to and say, this guy looks like an eloquent speaker. It's obvious that, his, that God's favor is on him because he has a nice house and drives a nice car. But the mark of the hand of God is the Holy Spirit power to change lives, not turn heads. So let's read about and, and hear about John. My thing fell down. Amy, I'm going to need your help. <laughs> this is the testimony given by John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Then they said to him, well, who are you? Let us have an answer for those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, why then are you baptizing if you are neither the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water 
Among you stands one whom you do not know, the one who is coming after me. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. This took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming towards him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So Isaiah 40 is God speaking. Centuries in the past, comfort, comfort my people. And here becomes John the Baptist. Does John the Baptist sound like and look like the guy you expect comfort to come from? I would probably say not. I really wouldn't think I'm looking at John the Baptist and saying, this looks like a teddy bear who I just want to have some comfort from. I would say, this looks like a wild man that I expect to have a movie made about him. I would say, this looks like man versus wild, AD1. But John the Baptist is an astonishing character in this story because without his presence, we don't know that Messiah is here. Do you ever notice this? Messiah does not announce himself. Jesus did not announce himself. The Holy Spirit testified in many other people, this is who you're looking for. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, the first person to say, this is the Son of God, was a demon, John's ministry, he says, is I have come to reveal him, to reveal, to shine a light on, to illuminate and to say, this is the guy we're waiting for. Pay attention to what he has to say. Are we listening to the forerunner's message? If we place ourselves in the narrative, if we say, who am I putting my hope in? Where does my hope come from? How do I live out a living hope? What does the forerunner have to do with it? What does John's, what does John's message say to us? When I said John is a fanatic, I mean John is a fanatic. John, John's message as he lives it out is one that hopes and has a a hope that rests on the full word of the Lord. This is the first, this is the first mark of knowing if we are listening to the forerunner's message. 
John is aware of the scriptures. He is quoting Isaiah to priests and Levites. He knows that that was the promise God made, that before the Messiah would arrive, this has to happen first, a voice crying out in the wilderness. He remembers the grand story and the promises that God has made within it. Later, John is going to undercome some, undercome some, uh, some hardship because as a prophet, uh, he makes enemies. If it wasn't the Pharisees who he was calling the, the offspring of snakes, then it was uh, a political ruler who he was saying, you are living in sin. When you start speaking the truth like John did, you make enemies and he's going to come under some hardship. But the hope that he lives with is when he sends his disciples to Jesus, he said, are you the one that we're looking for or should we expect another? Should we hope for another? Jesus tells him that his hope has been put in the right place. And so John is no longer than even worried about the difficulty. He knows that he put his hope in the right place and that God is going to fulfill his promises to him. And so he sees the temporal difficulty in light of his eternal joy. And when I mean temporal difficulty, you look at John's life and you find out it's going to be off with his head. He's a fanatic for the word of God. He's a fanatic for the full word of God. Both as it is written and then as he sees it lived. If you were to get behind some of the text of Isaiah 40, you find this really fascinating thing. At least I found that it was fascinating. So the other Bible nerds in the room or the other, uh, you know, very curious folks in the room, Isaiah 40, or even just the elementary students in the room, what comes before the number 40? 39. Okay, yep, that was not a trick question. 39 comes before 40, even in the Bible. Okay. But what's very interesting is that as people translated these scriptures out of Hebrew into the Greek or out of Hebrew into the English, they find that the scroll has these different columns. And you would say that, well, simply when the chapters end, it just is the new column, right? And that's not actually how it is, though. It's the text is just straight through. Until someone some, at some point later came through and they started marking it so that it would be easier to find things. Chapter 39 of Isaiah ends two lines before the bottom of the page. And chapter 40 starts right there. Instead of jumping to the next column and saying, well, this is obviously something that is disconnected from what we just read about, it's a continuation but if we look at chapter 39, we find that judgment is there. Hezekiah has put his hope in somewhere other than the word of the Lord, and God puts judgment on his house and says, Babylon is going to come and take your house away. Babylon is going to come and take the nation away. None of your children will, see, will live to see offspring. None of your children will have children of their own, and none of them will see the throne. So you have this incredible doom and judgment in chapter 39, and then chapter 40 begins with comfort, comfort my people. Well, how can that be? How do you see these things working hand in hand? Unless 
you're paying attention to John the Baptist. You see, we don't have to get everything figured out to trust the word of God. The stories are full of less than perfect blessed characters like Samson and Solomon and Saul who became the Apostle Paul. To hear the forerunner's message is to give the Lord direct welcome access to our lives. What was, what was John's what was his message? Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight his paths. Lower the high places. Raise up the low places. Straighten out the crooked ways. It makes me think of a, of a landing strip. Anybody fly recently? Have you ever flown into somewhere that looked like the runway wasn't quite Right? I know Pastor Earl flying into Africa, you had, you had to think, oh, how is this really going? Straight and smooth, preparing the way of the Lord. But our lives are no different. But John wasn't talking about just the world at large because guess what? It didn't. The Pharisees continued to put things and blockades and, and, and stumbling blocks in Christ's way, trying to trip him up. John's message was for lives. John's message was for his people, not for simply the nation of Israel or the world at large. Do we, make, do we make the path to our heart, to the center of our being, do we make that straight and smooth? Or do we put things up saying, God, if you pass by my test... If you pass through these other values, as long as you promise to bless my marriage or bless my bank account or give me favor at my job or give me favor with my family or this or that, then I'll give you what you want. Do we have doors in the way that we have to say, yes, I'll let you in, but I want some guarantees first. See, that's who John was dealing with, and that's what Hezekiah had lived out. Hezekiah became enamored with the power of Babylon, and he thought, wow, Babylon looks like the strongest, biggest, baddest nation on the block right now, and if we can get in good with them, we're going to be safe. Babylon came knocking on Hezekiah's door and saying, hey, we'd like to know if you're uh, in any kind of position to make a partnership, and we can, you know, we can kind of uh, take care of this Middle East together. And Hezekiah is flattered, saying, wow, you, you think that we could be partners? But Hezekiah already had a partner. Israel already had covenant relationship with the Lord, the living God. And he was the one who was taking care of them. And he was the one who was going to provide for them. And he was the one who always protected them. And he was the one who blessed them. And Hezekiah, Hezekiah compromised that relationship and said, well, I think Babylon might make us a little more secure, and I don't see God, I think he'll be okay with it. And that's where the judgment came. John the Baptist was dealing with 
many people of the same sort, looking around saying, well, Rome is here. We can make the best of it. Looking at one another saying, we can take them. We can kick, we can kick these pigs out of our city. And John was saying, we have to put our hope in the Lord. We have to put our hope in his word. We need to give the Lord direct and welcome access to our lives. We have to realize that we can change our minds and God will change our hearts. John's message was one of repentance. The literal word is to change your mind. John's message was one of saying, change your expectations. It's not what you think it's going to be. Everything that you're thinking needs to shift back in focus, back in line with what God has said. He was a fanatic for that word, saying it's not going to change. God's not going to change his mind. It's not going to be different than what he said. He said it's going to look like this. We're going to see what exactly it is going to look like and what John was waiting ready for. This last one, I thought, is reminiscent of, of Passion Week then, of Palm Sunday. It says that we are to host the parade for the beloved ruler, not the resistance of conquered patriots. Do you want a Lord of life? Or simply a patron who empowers our hobbies and makes life good for us as long as we stay on good terms with his rules? You see, that's the difference between the Lord and the patron. Follow the rules and you get the blessing with a patron. But God's people had always been welcomed into a, a beloved, treasured, special possession relationship with him as the living God. He's not there to simply say, I own you. He owns everything. There is at no point in the scriptures where you see God simply flexing his might and flexing his muzzles to remind everybody that he's in charge. It's an invitation to be a part of a family. It's an invitation to be part of a secure and stable kingdom. It's an invitation to know where we belong as followers and creatures and citizens. When we lived in Hawaii, a few years ago now, there was this, there was this uh, cultural fad, there was this cultural value, I'll even say. You'd see it on different cars around the island that we lived in, because many years ago, there was a single king who came through Hawaii, his name was Kamehameha, and he united the islands, quote-unquote, and he united them through force. He united them by conquering, by coming in, exercising domination, revealing his power to be superior to that of anyone local, and saying, I'm in charge now. But there was one island who he didn't conquer. That westernmost island where we lived called Kauai, 
did not submit to Kamehameha's iron (laughs) or his spear. Instead, they saw themselves as collaborators and partners, and they willingly yielded their throne to him, and they said, yes, we'll let you stay here. Yes, we'll be part of your new Hawaiian nation. But they always saw themselves as an unconquered people. So you'd see bumper stickers, and you'd see stickers on the back of cars, and they simply said, unconquered. 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 A head still high, saying, I have not bowed. We simply, we let you. And there's a difference between willingly, willfully celebrating the Lord who returns as the ruler to his rightful place and saying, yeah, I guess you can be in charge for a while. When Yahweh was returning to his people in the land where he had made covenant promises to them, it was a parade of return because that's where he belonged and that's where they belonged together. And instead... What we often have is an unconquered approach of simply saying, yeah, I guess you'll do for now. I'll let you be in charge. I don't see anybody else who's better at it. Or as long as you're going to kick Rome out, as long as you take care of my problems, as long as you take care of my biggest problems, yeah, I'll call you Lord. But if we maintain that sense of independence, if we maintain that sense of unconquered independence, we're missing out on the blessing of being God's beloved. We're missing out on the blessing of being his special possession. We're missing out on the blessing of being a people for the sake of living as persons. Letting the living God be Lord of your life is not a point of weakness, it's wisdom. It's seeing ourselves as creatures ourselves. It's being glad to follow someone worth following. John knew what he was looking at when he saw the Messiah come. The thrust of, of his message, the thing that makes the most shocking, the most shocking revelation he makes is when he says, he comes to reveal the Son of God. But there's twice in, this, in these opening paragraphs of John chapter 1 where he says, Behold. You know what that means? Look. <laughs> See it? Look. And what does he say after that? He says, It's the Lamb of God. It's the Lamb of Of God. It is not the lion of Babylon. It is not the eagle of Rome. It is the lamb of God. John's challenge to us is that we will accept the Lord himself as the lamb. He came to reveal in his message, if we are listening to the forerunner's message, if we're making the path straight, if we're saying, I've prepared a way, I want this Lord of my life, then we say, this Lord is the lamb? Well, that's not very ferocious. That's not very fearsome. That doesn't strike me as confidence and stability. 
That's not the valor and the, and the incredible might of the lion. And that's not the, 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 the majesty of the eagle. It's this, it's this thing that looks helpless. And cuddly and soft and... Some of you know this nation's history and that Benjamin Franklin wanted the national icon or the national bird to be the turkey, right? How about a lamb? Does that strike you as majesty and power and stability? But John's message is to say, look, it's the lamb of God. John's message, if we will accept it, if we will hear the forerunner and accept the Lord as the lamb, we suddenly realize that the self-righteous have no place in the kingdom where grace has invited us to belong. Because the lamb is always the symbol of sacrifice and weakness in the Old Testament. It's the offering. It's a sin offering. It's saying something else is paying for my way. John's speaking to Levites and Pharisees and priests, and he's saying it's the Lamb of God that I'm here to reveal. Because God himself offers full provision for sin, so by judgment rendered on one man, the whole world may be free of our real exile. John gets it. It's not about Rome. It was not about Babylon. It was about sin and death. Holding God's people captive, not just for centuries, but for millennia. It was about our current remaining exile. Because though we exist and live in a free nation, we still have these, we still have these powers We still have this sin and we still have this death. If we look at Isaiah 40, we see these things where God comes and he, and he comes with a mighty arm and then we, the, it takes a left turn and all of a sudden is a mighty arm that's a shepherd picking up lambs and leading mother sheep. Again, just the most ferocious character. But that's about God being in a restored relationship with his people. Something close, something protective and tender and sacrificial and special. Because salvation is not merely about eternal life, it's about experiencing a restored relationship. It's about being close to God again. The Lamb, behold the Lamb. They're useless. You're not going to breed a lamb so that you can pull your cart to the market. It's not a bull. It's not the horse. It's not a donkey. It's not beasts of burden who are workhorses and they can get things done. It's the lamb. 
It's not the lion that's victorious and the king of the jungle. It's not the eagle that's majestic and and valiant and lord of the air. It's the lamb of God. His strength leads to service, not domination. Can you imagine a church that saw the fullest expression of leadership and strength and maturity in faith being a servanthood and a serving heart and being a servant in hands and being a servant in spirit and being servant leaders? Can you imagine if the, if the, if the phrase were, they're just so, they're so strong, they've just got to serve someone. But we're, we're brought up in a culture and a world where strong things dominate. And our experience is that the stronger and the bigger, the more dominating and the more fearsome. Bigger, badder, stronger, faster. And yet here we have John saying, behold the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And when John asks himself the question, did I put my hope in the wrong place? Did I miss it? John's disciples come back to him and they said, he wanted us to let you know that the blind see and the deaf hear and the lame walk. And people who are oppressed and possessed are going free. And people who died are now walking around again. Because he was the lamb. And he was so strong, he, had, he just had to find those people who were weak and serve them and love them and build up their life and restore their life and show them what it meant for God to love them. The herald in, in, in Isaiah 40 says, See, behold, look, here is your God. We're not meant to mistake that invitation to see the glory of God. The glory of God looks like Jesus. The glory of God will always look like Jesus. Being able to see the glory of God is an invitation to know him intimately. To know him in a special way. Because God is not hiding or keeping his glory veiled anymore. You would think that John, as this final character of the Old Testament prophecy, as this final character of the, of the Old Covenant leaders, you would think that he would be so glad to have people flocking around him so that he can explain everything to him, to them. But instead he says, I've got to get out of the way. As soon as Jesus comes on the scene and he baptizes him and he says, behold the Lamb of God, here he is. What did we read? He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and two of his disciples followed Jesus. 
John never saw himself as a competitor with the Messiah. He knew exactly that he was there as a launch pad, as a spotlight even. As the loudspeaker telling the whole world, get ready, prepare, make it, make it so that we can recognize him. Here he is, he's coming, there he is, right there. John's ministry is incredible. So the, lastly then, to hear the forerunner's message is to share your hope. The root behind this word gospel is that it's good news. News is a static kind of thing. News needs shared. News needs spread. News needs communicated. News needs a platform. To hear the forerunner's message is to share your hope because the gospel is a message and news needs a herald. If we're paying attention to John, we see, and even the, the, the writers of these Gospels, we're meant to recognize that this good news starts through a Holy Spirit-inspired revelation in the wilderness, and yet it makes its way directly into the heart of the city. From the outside in, from barren places to populated places, from desolate places to flourishing places, from places where only a few people are, to places where everyone is. It begins in the wilderness, but it's meant for the whole population. It's meant for the world. Are we, are we tuned in to the forerunner's message this morning? Are we making straight the paths are we making it a smooth landing? Do we behold the lamb? Where is our hope? Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your grace. for your two-edged promise-keeping, for sending the forerunner to announce and illuminate and reveal the Lamb. Open our eyes. Give us, give us eyes that see and ears that hear. Empower and quicken our feet to share our hope as we embrace as we embrace the fullness of your word amen